Now, when I started this series in the prayer of Jesus, I thought it would be a nice little uh, thing that I could follow the seven I am sayings that Dawson did. He did a great job, and I thought, well, I'll, I'll follow up on that because this, this prayer of Jesus kind of caps things off. But I had no idea what I had done in opening uh, this uh, can of worms, if you will. Uh, the prayer of Jesus is incredibly crafted by an artist of literature. This guy put this thing together, John the Apostle, in a way that uh, was, was meaningful, memorable, and uh, filled with uh, content. In fact, it has so much that I've just gotten, I've been paralyzed with the amount of information, but I'm going to try to pare it down, make it a little bit more simple, I had planned to do this in seven weeks. I'm going to try to stay with that, but if I can't, I'll extend it because it's really an important thing for us to know what Jesus prayed. See, the Lord's Prayer is not really the Lord's Prayer. It's the disciples' prayer. We prayed a prayer He gave His followers, but this prayer is Him personally speaking to God His Father on His behalf, and it is magnificent. So, Let me invite you to open your Bibles to John uh, chapter 17. Uh, We're going to read this morning. I'm just going to read you the first 11 verses. uh, 6 through 19 are printed in your bulletin. Uh, So just listen and then catch up on verse 6. And uh, this will give us a little context. We won't go beyond uh, verse 11 uh, this morning. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father... The hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth and having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. They have kept your word. Now they know that Everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know the truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours." All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am, ke- and I am coming to you. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so what I've tried to do, and I, I hope I'm being somewhat successful, but if not, you can uh, certainly email me, and I'll try to clear up as much as I can. The prayer is made of 26 verses, 
26 verses. And there's a theme that runs throughout the prayer, and that is the theme of glory. And when we think of glory, we think of, uh, you know, sparkly lights or some radiance, some radiation. But the glory that's in the Bible is tied so closely to God that the glory is Him. It is His significance, His identity, His weight. And you can't separate the two. You can't separate what God is from what He does, nor from what He says. And so this theme of glory runs throughout this prayer. 26 verses. But there's only seven petitions. Now, you... you You can number the petitions a little differently. You can number them at six. Some scholars use six, some use seven. I've used seven just because it's memorable. There are only seven petitions in 26 verses. So what is he doing the rest of the time? And this is very important for us who struggle to pray. I, you know, I'd love to tell you that my prayer life is stellar, but I struggle to pray. I struggle to keep my focus. I I let my mind wander. Some days I'm just not into it at all and I just have to say, Lord, see you later. And that's not, it's not good. It's it's a bad thing to do that. But I think my experience is probably similar uh, to most people. It's not easy to sit down and pray. Now, if he was there like like in person, it'd be a lot easier. I, I can't imagine not wanting to just talk and talk and talk and ask questions and all that. But when you're alone and your heart is just being crushed by the things around you and maybe you have a lot of doubt, you're not sure, it can be hard. And so what I'm going to do is, is show you how Jesus did this and hopefully uh, the content, what he's praying for will be meaningful, but also the way he is speaking uh, to the Father. So there's only seven petitions, and I'm going to take some time this morning to talk about what he's doing in the rest of them. We're not going to really look at the petitions themselves. I'm going to separate that for next week. So what he's doing in all these verses, where there's not a direct petition, but even the petitions are tied to the content of the rest of the prayers, the context is that he is rehearsing the wonderful works of God in his life and in the life of his disciples and beyond that into the life of his people throughout eternity. He's doing exactly the thing that the psalmist does. If you read the psalms, you go through a lot. Rarely is the psalmist really asking for things as much as rehearsing how good and how glorious or how absent And how troublesome God is being. He's lamenting, where are you? Or he's saying, wow, you're the greatest in the world. You can see something very human, very natural in the way the Bible portrays prayer. Now, we we come along and we obviously uh, try to be pious and sound, you know, flowery and do all these things. But folks, I think this, this prayer, if our Lord prayed this way with his Father... It should make a great impression on us on how we can pray. And then, of course, his content, he's talking about us in these prayers. So here's your outline that I gave you a few weeks ago. I'm just going to run through it again and kind of share, share the breakdown with you. In verses 1 through 5, Jesus is praying primarily for himself. And the theme of glory is running through that first, first, prayer, first section of 1 through 5 with two petitions. 
Glorify your son. He's asking directly. Glorify your son so he can glorify you. There's mutual glorification. Bring me back, verse 5, bring me back into the glory I shared with you before the world began. And the context you find from verse 1 all the way through is the, the reason he's praying. Just quickly, the hour has come. The hour being the hour of his death, his crucifixion, his torment, what we call his passion. And this is the context in which he is praying for glory. And we should learn this and know this because in the West, here in the United States, we think glory is something completely else. We think glory is absolute victory, crushing our enemies, having lots of money, having lots of power, being the best looking person in the world, working for the top companies, whatever it is in your life, making the best grades. Whatever that is, whatever that glorious thing that we envision is not to be compared with the glory that God has. But very easily, that kind of glory can slip in and become a competitor. And you don't see Jesus doing that. His glory was completely wrapped up in God, His Father. And that is what He lived. That was His life. His identity was wrapped up in His Father. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't get a a kind of earthly glory, if you will, from all the things I mentioned. Those are fine. As long as your identity, who you are, is not wrapped up in them as well, to where if some part of that glory is not achieved, you don't make the grades you thought, you don't get into the school you thought, you don't get the job you thought, your marriage doesn't turn out the romantic way that you thought. Whatever it is, if that thing fails you, if it falls just a couple of notches, and you look at your life and you go, oh, I, I don't know if I can live anymore. My life is destroyed. My life is ruined. You see, you don't have an anchor for your soul. And Jesus is ready to face something that no human being has ever faced. The torture on the cross. Not because nobody had ever been crucified before, but because of who was going to go on the cross. He was going to endure torture that no one had ever felt because of who he was. He was going to absorb sin into his life as a sin offering. He was going to cover that sin. He had never sinned. He was going to go into a dark place he had never experienced that you will never experience if you put your trust in him. The hour has come. Then more of the content. You've given me authority over everyone. You've given me authority to give them eternal life. And here's eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is the context of his prayer. And do you see the glory is defined by the context. And the context of the prayer, the first five verses, is defined by what your view is of glory. And Jesus found glory in self-abasement, losing power, giving his life, suffering unjustly. Think if we absorb just the tiniest bit of that reality into our lives, think of how it will change your marriages, how it would change your work relationship, how it would change our relationship to politics, Whatever it is out there that's going on, if, 
if we were able to think in terms of how did Jesus view glory? Glory? Giving your life away for someone else, for something else. That God, our Father, is at the center of our universe and, and we're spinning and orbiting around His love and His grace. And this is what Jesus sets up for us in these first five verses. So that's the prayer for Himself. This is the way most scholars break it down. 6-19, through 19, He prays for His disciples. And we're going to look at part of that this morning. Again, glory is the theme. Look at verse 10 in your, in your notes or in your uh, bulletin or your Bible. All mine are yours, yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now there's a link between this glory we just blown away by in 1-5. through five. He's linking it to His followers, to His disciples, those immediate followers. But... As I told you last week, it's actually cast into the future to all who believe. We'll look at that again later, uh, probably in the series. And then he makes three petitions. Remember, he made two about glory in the first. Now he makes three. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Verse 15, keep them from the evil one. And verse 17, sanctify or make them holy in your truth. And we'll look a little bit at that uh, today, or next week maybe, the petitions. The context, many, we'll talk about it in a moment. And then just a heads up, verses 20 through 26, he prays for all those who believe. And just to show you that the theme is consistent, in 20 through 26, he's praying for those who will believe because of the disciples' testimony. So in 22, here's the theme again. Father, the glory that you've given me, I have given them. Now think about this. If everything is stripped away from you, everything, our money, our family, our reputation, our everything is stripped away. You have nothing. You're just sitting in a jail cell and you have zero of everything. And you're just sitting there, and you got nothing. There's not, people that you loved out there and the outside, they betrayed you and helped you get into jail. And you have nothing. You, have, you don't even have any hope of getting out of the jail cell. And it's late at night. And you start singing. Come rejoice, O Lord my soul. The song we did. You just start singing. That is unassailable. You see, nobody can touch that. There's a world out there, folks, and they can get it, everything you have. You think you're safe not putting your information on the church app? They already have it. And those of you that got vaccinated for COVID, they know where you are and they know everything you're saying. It's in your bloodstream now. And there's satellites up there that are reading your license plates. So cover them up and just pay the tickets because they know where you're going. Think about this for a second. The things that terrorize us, that we fret about. How am I going to make ends meet? Is my job going to work out? Is that, you know, I'm getting old, which is true. And my health, I don't know about this and that. All important, all good. I, I'm all for those things. You know, you're, you, those things are meaningful. 
But what part do they take in your life? Do they control the steps you take every day? Do they inform you to such an extent that your trust is not in the one who gave his glory to you? I hope you can see that. There, there's, a, there's a disjunction in the life of believers when somehow they're getting their wires crossed and wringing their hands about all that is out there that's scary and fearful, all true, and not fixing their eyes on the glory that's already been given to us and more to come. And then he prays two petitions in that final section. Father, I desire they be with me where I am. And secondly, I want them to see my glory. So there you have it, folks. That's the general outline of the, of the uh, text, and I, I hope that's helpful. But let me give you uh, just a few things quickly. We'll talk about some of the context. The petitions we'll look at next, next week. The first part of the context that, that runs throughout his prayer is this idea of his name. Your name, this is one of the primary reasons Jesus came to this earth, was so people could know God's name. Now that's not some secret knowledge that he's some Gnosticism of some particular name that nobody else name knows. But name was tied to nature. Nature was character. Character of God was glory of God. There was a substance. In other words, his name embodies everything that he is. There were a lot of names for God in the Bible. But the names, whatever they were, embodied something about who he was and what he would do. So the name was related directly to his nature, his being, his character, his glory, and his name was directly tied to his words, what he spoke. This is why in the Ten Commandments we were, we were told not to blaspheme or use the Lord's name in vain. Because his name is him. If you use his name in vain, it's like you're taking him and using him. And I don't know a person in the world that doesn't use God including myself. I catch myself sometimes. I'm doing things and I'm thinking certain ways and I'm maneuvering my life because I want to use Him. I want to get something from Him. And everyone does that. And when you find yourself using Him and not worshiping Him, you must repent and believe the Gospel. Love Him for His own sake. If he gives you nothing ever again, if he never answers another prayer of yours, never speaks another word to you from this day forward until you die. Nothing. In other words, everything is, goes dark. And you're still willing to look up at the sky and say, Father, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'm yours. I'm all in. And I will not back down. Now you're talking. Everything's stripped away. Now you're the guy in the jail, the woman in the jail cell who, who is more free than the jailer. Do you see that? And this is where I believe we've got to get to in our 21st century 
upper affluent type world that we live in because we have so many things competing. And it's hard. I'm not telling you it's not hard to to get through all that. I got off Facebook and and then Dawson told me I had to get on Instagram to keep track of what's going on in the church. So I did that. And now, my mind is completely distracted with little cute kids and cats and donkeys dancing and goats. And I mean, what is that? And I spend hours doing it. I, I'm, I'm ashamed to say it in front of my elders because they're going to cut my pay. No, not really. But I, it's an example, folks, of the, the amount of information just bombarding us in our modern age. You can't disconnect from everything. But you can at least start looking at something else and putting your heart and your mind into what God has for you, which is glory. Glory in His name. God revealed His glory, His name, to Moses, Exodus 3, in the burning bush, and He said, I am that I am. That's my name. Moses asked him again, I need to see your glory. And he said, I'm going to make my name pass before you. All my glory in my name is going to pass before you. And so he did it. God put Moses, as I told you last week, in this cave, this little cleft of the rock, and he made his glory pass before him. And he says this, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but He will by no means clear the guilty. And He will visit iniquity of the fathers on their children to the third and fourth generation. So His name is He declares to Moses as the Lord, the Lord. He uses the tetragrammaton, yod hevav which you've seen in your Bibles. It's capital L-O-R-D. And he says, this is who I am. I am the Lord. And here is all that I am. I'm loving, I'm just, I'm gracious, I'm slow to anger, I'm abounding in love, but I will not clear the guilty. And their sin will be visited on their children to the third and fourth generation. And everyone panics when they see that. Oh my God, how unfair. Did you, did you miss the part about thousands? This is a Hebraism. It's a way of saying, here's how gracious and loving and kind and magnificent and glorious and patient and good God is. Thousands of generations. And here is how he will not clear it. Here is what his justice is going to look like. Very little. Couple generations. He's not speaking specifically. He's not saying your children, because of all your sins, are going to be visited on your children. He's saying that when you compare the two, they're both there to be sure. But one is so great that so outweighs the other that it's not to be compared. He's not striking fear into our hearts for our children, for offspring. He's saying, you can trust me 
For my mercy is thousands and thousands. But my judgment, my harshness, will be will be very limited and very measured. Somebody in my neighborhood the other day, a car came by and hit their car and smashed the fender, and they drove away. And so they posted on on the the home, uh, our neighborhood app. And uh, so I'm looking at it, reading, you know, all this right around the corner from us, that was very, very bad, you know, this person, why can't they just stay or put a note, sorry, you know, get your car fixed. No, they hit and run. They take off. And you should have heard the outrage. How can people be like that? Who could do something? Hit the car and drive away. At least they could have. That was me. The other comments were even worse. We should string them up. We should. <laughs> you, you see what I'm saying, folks? That our outrage has no limits. In how outraged we are. We want justice for them. We want plenty of room. We want a lot of space when it comes to us. But when it comes to them, we want it exact we want eye for eye, tooth for tooth, down to the limit. We have no bounds. But if it's us, please, Lord, open the doors. Let, Let me please. We have no end to our <laughs> we have no end to our arrogance and the mismanagement of our rage. What's in a name? I was listening to a program the other day, and you know, uh, here's a name: Hitler. Right? That name was not uncommon in Germany in World War II era and before. How many people in the United States do you think are named Hitler today? There's one family in the upper Midwest. Beautiful family, all girls in their family, no boys in their family. And they made a a decision. They were not going to change their name. But they have to deal with it how often? every day of their life. Because that name is so associated with the monster that bore it that even now, 70, 80 years later, however long it's been, my math's not so good, however long it's been since he, was, since he killed himself, you can't get away from that name. God says, my name. That's a theme of Jesus' prayer. He is so concerned, folks, with God's name, who His Father is. And so, He was so concerned with the name, so much wanted us to know the Father, that He was willing to humiliate Himself and take on human flesh, be born in a manger, live a perfect life of obedience and get nothing back for it except a cross, be abandoned by every friend, everyone who who he, he should have been able to, to trust and stand by him, ran away. Even at the end, his father had to back off because he was bearing the sins of the world. This man, this is how much he wanted you and I to know the name of his father, to know who his father was. 
But he also said there will be justice. There will be justice. And, and that's something we long for. So God's not going to make any mistakes when he doles out justice. He will do what is right. Second one is your people. I don't have much time, but let me just say this. Look at verse 6, uh, verse 7 and 8, verse 9 and 11 and verse 10. This is remarkable. He's talking about his disciples, but here's the context of his prayers. These people that I'm talking about, Jesus is talking about, they belong to you, Father. They were your people, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. The word kept means that they have believed it. They've held on to your word your message about me. In other words, they, they, they didn't know everything they needed to know, but they knew enough. They knew to trust Jesus, who he was, and what he had come to do. In verse 7 and 8, he talks about the relationship. He's not asking for anything. He's just rehearsing before God. And they know, they, here's what he says to God. They know, Father, that you sent me, and they believe what you have said about me. Then he says, I'm no longer in the world, but they are. All mine is yours, and all yours is mine. Do you see what he's doing? He's not asking for anything. He's just telling, he's reminding God, if you will, of all of the promises that he has made to his people. And Jesus is wrapping himself up in our lives to such an extent that there is no way to separate him from us, us from him. What do you think one of the greatest problems that Christians have in their life? Just think about it. One of the greatest struggles that we have, it's assurance. How do I know that I'm saved? How do I know that I'm going to be kept? What, what, how can I be sure How can I be certain? Everyone in the back of their mind has little doubts. And ask yourself, how are you answering that? Well, you know I'm trying the best I can. I'm sincere. I'm as sincere as I can. When I mess up, I go to Him. You know, we we come up with all of these things, but do you hear the common thread running through them? It's all about us. All about what we're doing. How good we're repenting, how, how good our, our prayers are, how quickly we run back to Jesus. I tell you to run to Him all the time, but, and, I, and some of you are, you know, I take pride in how quickly I run. But that's not the issue, is it? Where is our assurance? He gives it to us right here. All are mine, and all mine are yours. Now, Put aside all of your good doing. What John Gerstner used to say, beware your damnable good deeds. Put them aside. And all is mine. You're not going to find any greater assurance than that. I don't care how hard you look, folks. You're just not going to find it. If it's not because He wrapped Himself up in you and you in Him and tied us together with cords of love that can never be broken, then you have every reason in the world to be afraid and to question and to wonder, 
Did that sin tip the scale? Did that thing I just did last night, did that throw it off? Did this thing I'm thinking about doing and probably will do, is that going to do it? Not if you read these words for what they mean. That doesn't give us a license to sin. If you think that, you don't understand what he's saying. And finally, his word. Let me, let me just close with this. We, we kind of think that his word is this thing out there. It's just body of knowledge. His word, the Bible, everything he said. And all that is true. But not in the context of what John is talking about. John is saying when they've believed your word, when they've kept your word, when they've held on to your word, he is the word. See, it's not just a body of knowledge. It's not just about learning theology. And I, listen, I love learning theology. I am a wannabe theologian. And I love studying doctrine. I spent three years of my life in earthly hell in seminary in order to study theology and to gain lots of knowledge. But in John's context, he's not talking about learning doctrine or context. He's, about, he's talking about knowing someone in the biblical sense of the world, word where you are drawing into a relationship with, where you know them. Like you know your spouse or you know your kids or you know your city, you know, you can drive and, and you don't even think, well, you know, I've got to turn left here somewhere. No, we know where we are. There's an, an, a knowledge that goes beneath all of that. It's not information, it's a person. Information can help you, but you, you cannot replace Jesus with information about Jesus, right? You can't. You have to know Him. Then the information will start to make sense to you. Or the information might help you make, you know, make sense of Him. The message about Jesus. Who He is and what He did. So let me close with this. I've already shared this with you, but I think that this is important. He shows you at the, at the very uh, height of His explanation of who God is. His name, His people, His word that God is a God of love and a God of justice, that He's going to do what is right, for this is how God loved the world. He gave His one and only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent His Son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through Him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes. There's the love part. But the very next word is, but. And this is the but, folks, that should cause a little bit of distress in our lives. Anyone who does not believe in Him has already been judged. You see, judgment has already been spoken over the world for not believing in God's one and only Son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people love darkness more than light, for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear that their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right will come to the light 
so others may see what they're doing. Will you trust Him? This is a God who loves you, but the threat is not from Him. It's from us. So turn to Him. Give your life to Him. Put your hope in Him. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank You for these things. It's terrorizing to think of them. And, but there it is. We can't trust ourselves. We can't trust anything we've done. But we can trust the one who has done great things for us. And all he's asking us to do is to believe in him, trust him, and then let that new life flow out of us like salt and light. We pray that you will help us, save us, and have mercy on us in Jesus' name. Amen.